I'm Ray Isle. I'm the executive wine editor for Food & Wine Magazine. Um, good morning, everybody. Um, happy, um, you know, 39th Aspen Food & Wine Festival, which is uh, kind of mind-blowing. Um, yeah. Uh, anybody, here, anybody here been all, here all, th all 39? <laughs> I've done 17, so that's something. Um, this is a pretty cool seminar, and I'm glad you're all here for it, because it's something new that we haven't done before. We've teamed up with one of our partner publications, Investopedia, to talk about, um, to taste some great wines, one, but to talk about this whole idea of investing in wine and what makes sense and what does not make sense. And we're very fortunate to have Caleb Silver, the, uh, the editor-in-chief of Investopedia, um, host of two podcasts. Yes, yes, we can clap for everybody. Host of um, two podcasts, The Express, which is a weekly investing and business news show, um, and The Green Investor, which is featuring interviews with executives, academics, investors, policymakers, um, and you should follow both of them because they're really cool. Uh, you started at um, Bloomberg in, as a TV producer, Bloomberg went on TV. CNN, um, nominated for an Emmy. Guy knows what he's doing, and now he runs Investopedia and comments for, you know, um, on markets and consumer trends on NBC, MSNBC, CNBC, Fox Business, ABC Radio, and probably like 20 other places that um, I'm not going to list off because it would be silly. Um, next to him, Charles Anton. Um, Charles is, one, a good friend of mine, and two, that's the, that's the most important thing, obviously. Um, nepotism, that's why I'm here. That's right, that's how it works. That's the investing thing in wine, nepotism, is, that's all you need to know. Um, Charles has worked in the wine auction business since 2006. First at Christie's, where he was head of sales and auctioneer, and since 2015 at Zaki's, where he is global head of auction sales and auctioneer, and is responsible for between four and thirteen million dollars of fine wine bought and sold through auction annually. It goes up and down. Something we'll probably talk about. Um, and he's also one of the busiest uh, charity auctioneers in the country, working with all kinds of great organizations to raise money for good causes, which is um, pretty cool. Um, next to him, Eric Siegelbaum, um, uh, founder of Sommelier, which is a full-service hospitality agency working with, um, working both in the U.S. and internationally, working with restaurants, working with uh, trade organizations, working with individual um, uh, people who invest in wine and want to build cellars, things like that. Um, he was a wine enthusiast, 40 under 40 tastemaker, and also food and wine 2019 Sommelier of the Year. Very important. That's the most important honor. Um, Food and Wine Magazine, 2019 Sommelier of the Year. Before Sommelier, he was corporate manager director for Star Restaurants and then a whole bunch of other restaurant work before that. And 10 years as a chef. So he will be actually sautéing foie gras for everybody <laughs> after this. It's going to be great. And last, um, and certainly not least, Carlos Solorzano-Smith. If you are an Aspen resident, you may already know he was for many years wine director at Matsuhisa here in Aspen. Um, I have seen him in there many times. <laughs> um, and um, he is currently the founder and managing partner of Aspen Hospitality Group, which runs some great restaurants in town. Um, with the two are? Uh, uh, Dumani Restaurant yeah, is yeah. a Mediterranean seafood in Aqualina. Yeah. Where it's kind of staple Italian uh, pasta and pizza place, opened in 2013, so come visit us. Yeah, check them both out. Um, he also, and this is crucial, is the founder of Aspen Cellar Consulting, um, who, and he consults for wine lovers, both um, new to the collecting world and with established sellers, about um, investing in wine, building cellars, seller inventory strategies, how not to lose your shirt doing this, um, how to <laughs> drink great wine in the process. That's all I'm going to say, because what you're really here to hear is them um, and um, enjoy. We've got some wines. I'll let them tell you about it. Um, this is going to be a super seminar. Up to you, Caleb. Okay.
Take that mic, please. Oh, that's right. You need a mic. I'm just going to walk off with this down. <laughs> Pass that down. I mean, you could have dropped it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Ray. Delighted to be here. We are so happy to have uh, to be in the family with Food and Wine and all these other great brands. And for Investopedia, it's a really big deal. So thanks for having us. I come from the investing world, from the capital markets world. Investopedia is the largest site for investing in finance education. I think of things like a traditional investor, buy low, sell high, how to value things, technical analysis. But this is a very interesting conversation. I got a great panel here. So we're going to, you, you met them already through Ray, but they're going to go and tell you which of the wines uh, they've poured for you. So I want you all to try those after they tell you which ones. Then you're going to make some notes on it. We're going to have a conversation about investing in wine, play a little game of hot or not, and then we'll open this up for questions in the last 15 minutes. So write your questions down, and I'm sure these, these gents will stick around if we don't get to your questions in the time allotted. But this is the smartest panel here in Aspen. You're the smartest visitors at the Classic. Uh, I'm just trying to keep up with you guys. You want to learn how to invest in wine, and so do I. I've learned so much speaking to them. So let's start now. Carlos, you got a wine you poured for us. Tell us about it. Folks, make notes. Try it out. And then we'll go down the line here and we'll get into the investing in wine conversation. Um, hi. So uh, I'm going to start with a, <clears throat> pardon me, it was a long night. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wine number three, um, I, I love Burgundy. For me, my passion is all about Burgundy. I know other people, other countries make wine, but Burgundy is all about what really I love. Um, I wanted you guys to taste a really good Pinot Noir from the United States. People say, Burgundy like, no, this is a really good Pinot Noir. As Domaine de la Côte from Rashpar. Rashpar was an amazing sommelier, somebody who got involved in the, um, and a little bit of the, um, going back to the roots, so being a winemaker. Winemaker is, it's, it's been a farmer, understand the land. Thank you very much. Understand the land. And uh, what he's doing with Domaine de la Côte was uh, founded in 2007. Uh, this, this vineyard, this vine's been planted in 2007. The 2020 vintage, uh, I think the production was close to 4,500 bottles. Very limited production, but a high quality Pinot Noir. So I would like to just to give it a try, taste it, and, and uh, see what you guys think. Delicious. Eric, what do you got? So I'm wine number two. I'm in the middle. Definitely try it because I am much more enjoyable when you've had a glass or two of wine. Um, this is from Washington State. This is the Cote Bonneville de Brule Estate Reserve Red. It's a Cabernet Merlot blend. Um, if you haven't heard of Cote Bonneville, you should. I, de I tend to not have favorites. People are always like, oh, you're a sommelier. What's your favorite wine? And I'm like, I'm not a Sith Lord, so I don't deal in absolutes, but Riesling. Um, but when people really put me to the fire or bend me over a barrel to have a favorite wine. Cote Bonneville is my favorite new world producer, period. And this is one of their reserve wines. Uh, if Washington State were to be awarded a Grand Cru vineyard tomorrow, the entire industry would be unified in saying it's this vineyard, the De Brule vineyard. And if you want to really get an idea of the pedigree of this, they keep the best 7% of their fruit for their own wine. This is it. The rest, they sell. Now, I'm not supposed to tell you this because you're, they're not supposed to talk about it, but if you've heard of Colcita Creek, the Cabernet that's gotten more 100-point scores than any other wine in the history, more than DRC, more than Lafitte, more than Mouton, pick a wine, Colcita Creek buys their Cabernet from Cote Bonneville, and that's the Cabernet that's not good enough for this wine. <laughs> so enjoy. <laughs> wow, great. All right, Charles, what do you got? Uh, so uh, number one here is Maya Kamis. Um you know, I, I'm coming to you from the secondary market and the secondary market um, auction, whether we're talking about anything really, wine, watches, art, um, is about uh, pretty much established brands. It's not a world where you um, create uh, new brands. Um, and 
you know, I'd said to Ray, we need to get Lafitte Rothschild here, but that didn't work. So what we got here instead, <laughs> <laughs> he tried, he did try. Um, what, what, what we have here instead um, is a, uh, you know, what I could, would consider a, a blue chip. Um, it's a, uh, these vineyards have been around uh, making wine since the 19th century. It's obviously under different ownership in the past 120 years. Um, but to me, this is just a, a classic example. It's something that never goes out of style. And what we've seen, you know, right now, at least in the auction market, the word on everyone's lips is Burgundy. Um, but what we've seen is sort of a rising tide lifts all ships. And something like this doesn't go out of style. And these sort of classically, uh, classically made California Cabernets are actually coming back and uh, coming up in value um, as some of the more spoof-related examples of California Cabernet are, are losing interest. So that's why I chose this one. Delicious, all three. <clears throat> so I want to get into why <clears throat> invest in wine. Obviously, it's an asset class. Obviously, it does have value. Sometimes it goes up in value. But it doesn't walk and talk like a traditional capital markets asset class, like a stock, like a bond, like a cryptocurrency, thank God. Um, but there are various reasons why you know, folks might want to invest in wine. And we want to get in, I want to get into that. And then once we get into that, and I want you each to kind of weigh on on the reasons, pick a different reason if somebody picked one uh, ahead of you, the things to really watch out for and the things to pay attention to, and then we're going to go through some lists of things you absolutely have to know if you're going to try to invest in this asset class. So Charles, let's start with you. Um, we've talked uh, ahead of this about you know, the, the dangers of investing one, the things that, that could go wrong, but the things you have to pay attention to, but most importantly, the expectations. So why don't you take us out with that? Yeah, I, that, that's the first thing I always speak to everyone about when they think about investing in wine. I mean, there's a lot of, when you invest in wine, there's a lot of things to think about. Um, number one, it's not something that, you know, like crypto or any of your other money that's on your phone and you can watch it go up and down. It's purely liquid. You can get rid of it when you want. I think that um, the majority of wines that I see that have done really well in the market uh, are blue chips that you get and you hold for a long time, a long period. And there's a lot of costs associated with holding wines for a long, a long period. Um, that's probably the first thing that I that I tell people is, what do you want to get out of this? Is this a hobby investment? Is this is this an, a, 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 an investment where you're really going to consider putting a portion of your assets um, because it's sort of a a tertiary to your normal investments, um, you know, you really need to answer those questions because like any other investment in anything, whether it's um, any business or any uh, anything really, you, you need to know what you're getting into and what you expect to get out of it. I think a lot of people um, are sort of see an ad or something that shows that the fine wine market has outpaced the S&P 500 by 2x. And, you know, that that is at best uh, misleading <laughs> and at worst a lie, I would say, um, because there's so many things that uh, go into investing in, in wine that, you know, you're not necessarily told about. Um, what else, guys? Yeah. Eric, why do it? Why do you think people, besides the fact that they find value, they enjoy it? What's important to know if you're thinking about investing in this asset class? So my biggest piece of advice, I do a lot of private seller investment management for wine. And my biggest piece of advice is plan to drink every bottle you're buying. And that's your investment is delicious wine. Because if you're doing this simply for like, okay, what percentage ROI can I make? You know, what's the curve? Where can I maximize, you know, sell it top of market? But wine ends up the thing for you. Uh, and, you know, I, I guess we could make the point that gold comes in and out of fashion, but not as much as wine does. And because wine is very much something based on trend and based on opinion, it changes dramatically. So uh, I have some clients that are like, okay, so I want to buy Lafitte or whatever. And I want to, so how, how long do I need to hold it until I can make 30% back on it? I'm like, I don't know. It depends what vintage, it depends what you paid for it. And it depends if we can find a buyer for you. 
So my number one piece of investment is if you're going to do it, plan to drink the wines or, or plan for those wines to move down in your family. So I do a lot of <clears throat> legacy seller planning. So like, hey, let's invest in this asset class because you love it and maybe your kids will love it and maybe it will be something incredibly valuable for your kids to either drink or sell. But if you're looking to invest in wine for short term, it's not like flipping houses. It's, it's not the right strategy to be like, I want to buy and sell in, you know, within a, a short span right. if you want to make money. That's an investment in its own right, though, right? I mean, if you're investing, we were talking here about investing for financial return, but you know, investing in wine that will mature and develop with age is its own kind of investment. I mean, you're investing in your own pleasure, sort of, in that way. Right. So what there's the, the investing for taste, right. there's the investing for collection, but there's the investing it, for estate. So Carlos Wiles. But there's a romance about wine. Wine is not just a liquid in the bottle. It's actually, uh, it's something to enjoy among friends. And if you saw, I'm going to China, for example, the Chinese were actually bringing high-end bottles to drink to make a deal. That's happening in Silicon Valley all, all the time now. If a new up-and-coming company got sold, the founder who got a lot of money, now his next step is going into wine auction, get somebody who knows about wine, who teach them how to invest in wine, because the next deal is going to be done around the table with a really good bottle of wine. There might be the, the person who's going to buy the next company or the founder or the see money year birth. Where you got the bottle? Provenance. That's what the auction house does. And I think that rom- the romance doesn't have to take away of what the profits can come. Yeah, absolutely. There's the story. There's the experience, right? Wine does all of these things that a stock can't do necessarily. uh, uh, Bitcoin can't do necessarily. Um, But there's also investing, and we're going to stick mostly with investing for collection, investing for value. But obviously, you can invest in the public markets, in wine companies. You could be a private equity investor in vineyards. You can own a piece of a vineyard. You can own. There's other ways to approach it. We're going to stick with the what to consider if you're actually thinking about turning this into an investment. And there's a lot of things to consider. You, you talked about provenance, um, but what are the other key considerations if, as you consult with folks, Carlos, or as you help folks build potentially their own uh, sellers, what are com- some of the key considerations you're always talking about to your clients? Uh, especially investing in wine, because I know um, it's always trying to, if you want to buy a wine, make sure if you can buy the, the original wooden box, or original box or the wooden case, it just brings more value to the wine. Get uh, buying futures. People might not be into uh, paying something for for bottles today and three years, but it's a really good investment. We pay five hundred dollars for a feed that we don't know in two three years going to be a thousand dollars. So it, it increase in value very quick. And you get married, you do that. I would say. Always trying to figure out, find somebody who knows about wine, learn yourself about wine, and focus on, listen, this is a business. Get, get the best value you can. I mean, people forget about it. The internet is there. You Google a bottle. You see it. You go to a liquor store. You say, I'll pay $400. I can buy it. I can sell it for $800. We, people like us, that's what we do. We teach you, hey, this has a good value. I think um, just trying to figure out, find somebody who knows and can help you to um, uh, get more profits from your investment. I think- yeah, I think no, I was going to say, I think, you know, I, I think that what everyone always asks me is, you know, what is the next Google? What is the next Amazon, you know, uh, you know, Facebook, whatever. But the reality is much less sexy. I mean, the way as it is in investing in, you know, the stock market, for example, and what people who um, I advise on really long term investing, it's buy wines that have uh, proven results, sometimes over the course of hundreds of years, some of these wineries. Um, and, you know, if you want to take a small portion of the money that you're thinking of investing in wine and, you know, have a few moonshots, you know, this might go up and might go down. But as Eric said, if it goes down, I'll drink it. I really yeah. enjoy the wine. That's fine. Um, but, you know, whatever you're investing in, uh, you know, some of it needs to be in something safe, something reassured. And as Carlos said, um, you know, you need to think of it a, a little bit like, um, 
memorabilia or any other collectible in that, you know, if you have Mouton Rothschild, Domaine de la Romane Conti, some of the most famous, valuable wines in the world. However, if you have one bottle, there's a lot less value to that than having the original case bound in the wood. You know where you got it from. You got it from a great source. It's been stored correctly all these years. I think there's, I think people think that one bottle of Mouton Rothschild, just to use that example, is equal to one twelfth of a case. And it's really not, uh, it's really worth quite a bit less. And that comes a little bit back to what Eric was saying, which is what is your exit strategy for this? You know, we find it in my business, it's much, much easier for us to sell a $15,000 case of wine than to sell one $200 bottle of wine. Um, just because that's what people want. And because people are in the same mindset as you buying it originally, they want to buy something that's in this original case, perfectly pristine. You know, it's almost in some ways in that respect. And remember these wooden boxes, we talk about the wine being this magical thing. The wooden box is just a piece of junk. That's something, I mean, these, right? Like most of these four, it's not, there's nothing special about it. It's not like you're buying a, a uh, you know, um, something that is uh, uh, artisanally made when it comes to the box. Yet, uh, similar to lots of collectibles, whether it be watches or um, figurines or whatever it is, people want that whole set, um, which sort of links it more to like a, almost a memorabilia or a, or a collectible world as opposed to a, uh, the financial world. Yeah, great points. I definitely want to get into all the things we need to be careful of. There's like a, a 10 point at least checklist. So folks, we're going to want to write this down. But before we do that, Eric, let's talk about the point system. You spoke about the fact that it, you should use it, but you should be careful about how you use it as well. Folks, anybody not know what the point system is in uh, wine? All right. So tell us what to be careful of. Well, I mean, so first of all, what you have to understand is the point system is highly subjective. It's one individual or one publication's opinion about the value of something. Um, and as more and more people enter and exit the, the reviewing and scoring world, it's kind of become dilute. Like one person's 93 is another person's 95 is another person's 89. But what does that mean? Like I like to say as a sommelier, like if you put two wines in front of me and one was a hundred point wine, one was an 89 point wine. And you said, all I want you to do is taste them. Tell me which is a hundred point wine. I wouldn't know how to do that. Cause I don't know what one point tastes like. So how do I know what a hundred points tastes like? Correct. But the bigger thing that points can do from an investment standpoint, it's sort of like blessing and curse. The blessing is if you have the ability to acquire a highly pointed, you know, 95 plus point wine, then that is going to be a more appealing wine for resale than that same wine, but in a different vintage that maybe didn't score as high. However, since I also do acquisitions for a lot of people, those high scoring wines then cost you more to acquire. Um, I, I have a client that wanted Screaming Eagle. I'm like, sure. He's like, can I get a 100-point vintage? I was like, yeah. He's like, why is this three times as much per bottle as the 98-point vintage? It's like, because it's a 100-point vintage. So there is a bit of a blessing and a curse with that. Uh, and if you, can, if you have the opportunity to acquire directly on mailing list or, or early on before the scores come out, that's when you really have the opportunity to get a win because the moment something is top of – any of the top 100 lists, top 10s, or the moment it gets those high scores, automatically the value of that goes up, but then the cost to acquire goes up as well. Right. You deal a lot on the secondary market, so you yeah. got to keep an eye on that, right? Tell us what to look for on the secondary market where most folks are probably going to start investing or start collecting their wine. Yeah. I mean, well, in terms of points, I would just, I mean, points are like, you know, there are, there are like Canadian ice wines that have a hundred points. I mean, these are not, you know, they're not necessarily, they're not, if if something has high scoring points, it's usually not a a bad thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. I mean, a great example is DRC, Domaine de la Romanicanti, by far the most, you know, uniformly expensive and investment grade wine uh, in the world. And it 
it doesn't have the greatest points, really. I mean, you know, uh, on Thursday we had an auction, and just to, right off the top of my head, I mean, 2016 Corton from DRC. I mean, it's a bottle of wine we sell for $2,400 a bottle. Uh, you know, it's like 92 points, something like that. So I have a client who decided a number of years ago that he was going to create a fund. And this was a pure investment vehicle. This was wine that he was never seeing. It was going straight into a warehouse, never saw it, never touched it, never opened it, um, based solely on 100-point scores. And it, it didn't serve him well because a lot of the, the – he was missing out on wines that didn't have good scores that, that, that have been great investment and ones – uh, that did have good scores that weren't great investment, like that ice wine, for example. Um, you know, there's just not the market for it. Um, but other things to look for in the secondary market other than points? Is that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So in the secondary market, uh, it's a great place. You know, I think what you'll find when you start to buy, uh, especially mature wines, and mature could be anything from 10 to 50 years. Um, if you're buying them oftentimes from retail, a lot of times those retailers bought from auction because um, it's a great place. Uh, you know, traditionally auction was a trade uh, business where, um, the auction houses would sell directly to the trade. The trade would sell on to you. And the auction business is uh, sort of uh, intentionally opaque because they actually want the trade wanted to keep consumers out. And over the last 15, 20 years, the auction houses have lot, done a lot of work to sort of cut out the middleman and bring the consumer, the end consumer, directly to the auction. And by doing that, you're cutting out the middleman's margin. You know, we, we still have clients and some of our biggest clients are buying from us and then selling on and adding up. So if you can cut out that middleman and go straight to auction, um, there's work involved with that. And what you get uh, for your work is you get the wine at a less price. So it's really up to you if what you want is the convenience of going to a retailer and saying, I want this wine. I want, here's my credit card transaction done. I want 12 bottles. I want it delivered tomorrow done. Or if you want to say, okay, I'm going to go to auction. I'm going to save 15%. But the auction happens in two weeks. I'm going to have to bid on it, which means I'm going to have to come up with a price and so forth. But the things to look for uh, are the same um, regardless of where you're buying wine. What, what is the, the storage of that wine? How has it been stored? Um, what are the conditions of the individual bottles? Uh, when I say conditions, I mean everything from the level of the wine in the bottle, the eulage, to the cork condition, um, to, you know, sadly, I guess, for some of us who love wine, um, the label conditions, um, doesn't really affect the taste of the wine in most cases, but label conditions are something very important to think about. I mean, mainly what you want to work towards is the platonic ideal of the pristine bottle that looks like, even though it's 25 years old, it looks like it's never been touched or seen or you know looked at by anybody. Carlos, you run a restaurant group. You have a couple of restaurants. You also are a consultant. You're very Correct. steeped in the market. It's super important, just like any asset class, to know which way the market is going. So how do you stay on top of that? Do you, do you stay on top of that, obviously, through your, your channel checks, but also you're feeling that from your customers as well. Where's the market going now, and how are you paying attention to it? I mean, definitely reading a lot. It's important, you know, kind of figure out every, every year when the vintage is coming. We kind of keep in touch with what, what's going on in the vineyard. It's so important to go back to the roots of the wine, where the wine comes from. You know how the years, uh, the winter, the summer, uh, do we have a hell, the wine is doing well, uh, winemakers still alive or things like that has changed. But uh, I think uh, that's, that's one of the things I see. I mean, for me, it, trend is trend. It's going to go up and down. It's going to be a new up-and-comers. We have to keep looking up for them. But we always, what I do is I work mostly for venture capital. That's what I do. I take care of the private sellers, and I stick to blue-chip wines, wines that I know are going to increase in value over and over and over. And I recommend that if you want to buy anything, buy it for an auction, you know. I don't think you can buy it cheaper for an auction. But one thing you can do is gonna, you're going to get from an auction. A lot of people are going to take a look at that bottle. 
that bottle will not be missed. You know, you're paying 25, 24% in, of premium fees. It's a lot of money, but you know the bottle's going to prestige. Or from people like us, I go into a private seller, I look at it, it's got a million dollars. I buy it and I sell it to my clients. The, and that's how, but I go to every single person. And when I have a doubt, I have a resource of knowledgeable people that I can send a video, picture, and they take a look of it. So I, I will say it's a, it's a lot of other things, but trends, uh, you know, just be careful. Everybody's thinking it's going to be a new, a new unicorn one, and it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Now, Burgundy is Burgundy, yeah. Bordeaux is Bordeaux. You, and, uh, you, you have to be very careful of, like, judging, you know, a wine regions. For example, um, you know, there are newsletters you can get and say, oh, Rhone, Rhone wines are up X percent. And if you just need to be careful of if there's no SEC overlooking this, you know, overseeing <laughs> yeah. this stuff, right? So it could be like Rhone wines are up. But if you sort of actually go into the data, it's like, well, one winery has, you know, gone through the roof, which is dragging the entire region up. Because 99% of Rhone wines are not investment grade. However, there are a few that, you know go crazy. And I also think that there's a great website, a great resource for people who are really considering this, which is uh, winemarketjournal.com. And they actually graph the prices of these wines. Um, it's a subscription service, but it's not that much. And you know what you'll see, and to me, at least in my personal life, it comes down to you know, how I invest financially and so forth too. It's really a time game. I mean, these wines that we're talking about, the greatest wines in the world, they will go up, um, but they also go down too. And it's just how long you're willing to sit on them and how long you're willing to pay the associated costs with that. I mean, if you have a seller in your basement that holds 10,000 bottles, great. If you're paying two bucks a month per case and you want to have, uh, you know, seven, eight hundred, a thousand, five thousand cases, uh, you know, it's a different it's a different calculus. That's all. Absolutely. All right. Let's get into the checklist of the considerations. I want to start with storage because that's super important. So if you're considering buying a collection, buying some cases. Uh, Eric, tell us what are the key things we need to focus on as it relates to storing that wine? Sure. Well, for one, I think a lot of times people forget that there is definitely a carrying cost to holding on to this. If you have Bitcoin, it doesn't cost you anything to have an app on your phone to hold your inventory. If you have wine, you need a physical space that is not in the light, that is climate controlled, temperature controlled, humidity controlled, secure, insured, properly located, accessible when you need it, and that all costs. Whether it's your home seller or whether it's an offsite storage location, there are there are pretty significant costs. So if you're thinking about buying a, a case of wine at a, that you know for twelve thousand dollars and hoping that you're going to sell it in twenty years for sixteen thousand dollars, you have to do the calculus on what is my annual cost to hold this wine because I need to pay to store it. And I, a lot of times people sort of forget that. It's kind of like when you're buying a house, you forget that, oh, yeah, also the commissions that have to get paid, right? It's not just the closing costs. It's, it's everything around it. I, I think that's really, really important consideration. Do you have the appropriate storage? Also, are you able to manage that storage? A lot of my clients, they want to build show pony sellers and investment sellers. I'm like, okay, what are you going to use to keep track of your inventory? Like, what do you mean? Like, okay, so you're buying this as an investment. You have 4,000 cases of wine. What do you do when... Somebody t- says to me, hey, I need two cases of two, uh, 2010 Le Pen. I was like, I got a guy that has it. And I call my guy. He's like, hey, those two, those, that 2010 Le Pen, I got it sold for you. Oh, I don't know where it is. I mean, it's in the cellar somewhere, right? So um, how you're going to manage that? And there are a lot of people that will manage sellers for you. And there's a lot of great uh, services and platforms. I actually love Microsoft Excel for this, but it requires, <laughs> but it, it's my favorite seller management tool, but it requires you to be accurate. It requires that, that one night when you have people over and you go down the cellar and drink uh, an amazing wine that you remember to reduce it from inventory. Because when I help my clients liquidate, 
I can't, I don't think I've ever had a situation where every bottle that was said to be an inventory was actually an inventory. It's true. And, and it's never happened. And we go on your behalf, whether it's an auction or yeah. whether we're doing private acquisition liquidation for you, it's not an easy process to get to a buyer seller agreement and say, this is the price both parties are happy. And then once one or two bottles or one or two cases are not there, suddenly it's, it's not a renegotiation, but then you have to calculate, okay, well, seller was asking this much buyer paid this much. So that's as a percentage of the total. So how does that bottle value then deduct that percentage for that missing bottle? It becomes very complicated and it definitely slows down the the whole process. Yeah, we're talking about a a, a produce here. We're talking about real goods here. Yeah, Yeah. but but if you you want to invest $200,000, $300,000, you can work with half a million dollars. You can work with domain storage. You you ship your wine there. They take care of everything. Perfect storage. They they do a really good job. I work with them with several of my clients who has different houses. But the main storage and domain this hasn't been open. That's a good investment. I mean, what you're saying is so true. We we forget about the overhead of this luxury um, uh, items that we enjoy personally. But if we're going to make money, we have to really do our homework. And um, we were talking. Just listen. Always when you guys all go to restaurants, you guys know a lot of great sommeliers. What we do as a sommelier, as a sommelier we're trying to help you guys. Anywhere you go, just talk to some. Say, like, hey, is any good wine that you like it? Is any, is any stores around? I'm buying a house. I live here. It's always something nearby that can help you because the value of your investment can go up for the very small details, the label. Every time somebody buys bottles, I like wrap it. Wrap the bottle. Keep it in your cellar. Don't touch it. And if you, okay. if you Wrap really, it in what? On, on, on just a plastic. I like just the like plastic. Cashmere is what I yeah. use. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, have got, I have got two sellers and I saw the bottles ripped in the middle because they have a wooden shelf and they grab the bottle like this and they just scratch the label. And I'm like, you know, you lost a couple thousand dollars in the bottle just because of the label. Ah, yeah. Situations like that happen. And this depends what you, how much you want to invest in. I mean, what do you want to do with it? Yeah, and, and in case you didn't catch it, Carlos's main theme was trust sommeliers. <laughs> <laughs> trust the some. What about refrigeration? Obviously, a huge, huge uh, part of this. Um, that costs money too. You deal with with restaurants, but you're also dealing with private clients. What are the key considerations? as you think about refrigeration? I mean, space. <laughs> you have to be the right space. You have to think about summer and winter. Some clients put a cellar because it looks nice, but they forget when the summer comes, it's going to be a lot of heat coming, a lot of light coming through. Uh, those situations will ha- happen a lot. We will, it's, it's one thing to design a cellar to look good in your house. Another thing to design a cellar to preserve your investment. And that's so important. Sometimes when you build your house, you think about it. Anything on the ground, when you go to any wineries, Usually in France, you're going to taste the one in the basement, in the cellar. That cold temperature is going to be all year long. You know, I mean, heat is up. And, and if you can prove it, too. I mean, you know, we, we sell a lot of wines uh, from 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s, 40s. You know, as you get older, obviously fewer in 30s, 20s, and so on and so forth. And there wasn't great refrigeration back, <laughs> back then, right? So, like, and also, like, if you've been to France... Like the, the cellars are deep enough that they're not, it's not like they're temperature controlled. You're just going down into the rocks. Um, but to the degree that you, if in the secondary market, what we see is the biggest value for wines is wines that are being consigned directly from a winery. They've never left the winery. You, you can't do that, obviously. The second tier is people that can show uh, sort of a proof of ownership, proof of provenance. And they can give a, a level of reassurance to the end buyer that these wines have been stored correctly. The, the worst is when you're selling a wine that you bought some, like the wine was already 20 years old when you bought it. Uh, maybe it's been traded three times. You don't know really, 
you know, then you're going to start to lose value. So as a, as just a, you know, a civilian, not a winery owner, what you want to be able to show is like, I bought this when it came out, here's the receipt. My seller has, you know, I either stored it professionally or I have a seller with backup generators. There wasn't, you know, one summer back in, uh, you know, 1992 where we lost electricity <laughs> for five days and they hadn't installed my backup generator yet. You know, you want to be able to show that. And to the extent that you know that, you sort of have to remind yourself that unlike buying some Apple stock and then selling some Apple stock, there's a degree of marketing to this, right? It's not just like, here's the value on a certain day, done. If you can weave a story of the wine and why you, why you have this wine and, and, you can sell it at a time when that wine has sort of captured the imagination of the general wine drinking public, uh, you know, then you have a real win. I mean, there's many examples of wine that I don't think should really be as expensive as they are, but for every reason, whether it's, you know, influencers or just a, a general, the general zeitgeist, these wines are three, four, 10 times X. And there's no real reason for that other than, you know, the market. Yeah. Ads. Well, what you're talking about here, chain of custody, storage, good records. You see a lot of folks, and you guys are, are deep in this, uh, coming out with blockchain solutions, right? NFT companies that are saying, hey, I'm going to give you the digital twin of your bottle of wine to show you the story behind it, show you the record behind it, show you who owned it. So you're starting to see some folks, and I've met a few folks here that are trying to do that. That could be a good use of blockchain for the wine market, just like it could work in real <laughs> estate. I want to get into blue chips. You mentioned Apple. You're all talking about blue chips. We should have a blue chip checklist because not all wines are blue chips, but some are pretty obvious. I want to start with you, Eric. What's your blue chip checklist as you're looking for those top tier wines that are probably most likely going to increase in value and are good bets? You want names or you want categories? Let's go categories and then we're going to do names. All right. Um, I think Grand Cru Burgundy and First Growth Bordeaux is fairly insular from major fluctuations and pretty stable. Um, From there, even like the market in California has really softened over the last 10 years. And a lot of wines that were purchased 10 years ago are still worth roughly what they were purchased for 10 years ago. Um, but there's, you know, there's no certainty, even what we do, it's opinion to a certain degree, it's knowledgeable speculation basically. Um, but in terms of brands that I don't really see ever declining, as long as we have provenance, chain of custody, proper condition, um, Lafitte, Chateau Margaux, I mean, I'm not going to name them all because I need to give you guys some stuff. <laughs> uh, you know, DRC, uh, Raveneau, pretty much all the burgundies that start with R, Raveneau, Rouleau, Rumier, Ramenet, et cetera. Um, that's like my, my secret to burgundy. It's like if it starts with an R, it's probably pretty valuable. Yeah. <laughs> Carlos, what's your blue chip checklist? Uh, I don't want to I don't want to step for your thoughts, but yeah, it's mm-hmm. true. Uh, burgundy, I mean, those Grand Cru's are precision proof in so many ways. Uh, but don't overlook uh, I love Bordeaux because when I got married, I... We drink a lot of six liters of, um, of Bordeaux, and we enjoy it very much. But uh, think about it, what all the investment is happening in Napa right now. We have a winery sold for $200, $300 million. I mean, that production is going to load. Investment from international investments coming in that area. So I think don't overlook good wines in Napa. I love Opus One, 100 acres. Those are wines that are, if you buy whole cases, put it away. It's, just, it's a good investment there. It does have a blue chip. But I will, if, I, if you ask me... I just stick to Burgundy. <laughs> Charles, what's on your checklist? Yeah, I mean, Burgundy's hard right now because, so, like, if you look at the, the traditional supply versus demand, you know, Bordeaux is rare in terms of wine in general. Like, first growth, Lafitte Rothschild, I mean, it's rare if you're talking about just wine, like, compared to, like, you know, your average liquor store wine, but it's not that rare in the secondary market. I mean, they're making thousands and thousands of cases a year. And for forever, really, since the auction market um, has been around and really, uh, Bordeaux has always been the main wine that has been traded until uh, I think it was 
maybe five or six years ago when Burgundy surpassed Bordeaux, not in terms of volume, but in terms of, of value. Burgundy is truly rare. I mean, Romani Conti, 300 cases a year for the entire world, you know, 350 cases, um, something like that. So uh, uh, as, as global wealth increases and they're still making the same amount of wine, um, it's very easy to see how that, ri- that would rise. I will say, though, uh, you know, I, I deal with a lot of the, the, the general trend in the auction market is you start collecting in your 30s, 40s, as you start to have some expendable income, 50s, and then all of a sudden you're 70, 80, and you say, holy crap, I've 30,000 bottles of wine. What my, my kids don't want it. What am I going to do? So I deal with a, a lot of people uh, when they're liquidating their sellers. And it's a common refrain where they say, oh, this bottle of Burgundy, I remember I bought this for $10. Like people didn't want to give it away. So it hasn't always been the, the sort of blue yeah. chip that it is now, whereas Bordeaux has. I mean, Bordeaux has always been the most expensive wine. Uh, maybe that's a little little much, but for a long time, it's been the most expensive wine uh, out there for sure. So, I mean, but, once upon a time, though, that was sweet German Rieslings until yes, I yeah, was the most expensive. People always love to bring up the Riesling thing. And yeah, how most expensive wine. Everything <laughs> happens for a Riesling. Uh, but Carlos, if I may, Carlos, Carlos uh, mentioned something in passing that I think is worth talking about. He was talking about drinking large formats, and large formats tend to be worth more if you do the, the, the math of the amount of liquid in the glass, tend to be w- worth more than smaller formats. On the same token, though, they also tend to be harder to liquidate for the very same reason that they tend to be worth more. And some people are like, okay, so I can get a nine liter case of 12 bottles of this wine for $10,000. But if I wanted to buy a nine liter bottle of it because of the rarity and of the format, that's $18,000 or $20,000. So in, in some regards, investing in large format is valuable. But I think the biggest consideration you need to know is despite people like us who can help you liquidate when you're ready and, you know, talk to us, we got you. Being able to sell a wine for what it's worth is a very different thing than having a wine at worth. And I, I advise a lot of my clients, like you've, uh, I have a client who has a bunch of six liters of Lafitte. I'm like, no, those are very valuable, but it's still an inefficient marketplace. And just because you want to sell it for what it's worth doesn't mean that we can find a buyer who is ready to buy those six liters of Lafitte for what they're worth. Yeah, we yeah. call that the greater fool theory. What's the next person willing to pay for it and why? And that's especially true. I will have to add something on that part. I, I, I agree with you in many ways, but I believe that the next generation, COVID brought something unique in the wine market. A lot of new drinkers, a lot of educated drinkers. And I think... Uh, because wine is a romance. Open the bottle, take the cork. It's a, it's a beautiful event. I think uh, large formats will, uh, with the new up and coming um, wine investors like you guys or or new connoisseurs, uh, I think will, large format will be a big hit. Because anytime you go to a party, you bring up. I told people, Magnum shows you care. You go to a party, bring a Magnum, you're <laughs> good. Yeah, you're good. You're good. And, you know, it's, it's, it's special. It's, it's really special. I, I believe... Because I have done with a, a lot of those. Every time I see three, six, nine liters, I go for it because I know my client's going to love it. You throw a party of eight, ten people, open that bottle, it's, everybody's taking pictures. It's, it's, don't, don't forget, any investment that you do in the wine business as well has to be enjoyable. Yeah. And that experience, it's something unique. Be prepared to drink it. Let's rip through the biggest mistakes because I want to get to the hot or not list and then let the folks ask some questions here. Don't split a set. Why is that so important, Trump? Don't split a set. Uh, <laughs> it gets back to what I was saying before. I mean, the, it, people want, uh, let's see, uh, you know, why? Why do people want that? I mean, I think it probably comes down to the fact that people like this this uh, contained unit. Uh, th- and for the same reasons that we're talking about, it's just, it's been established that it's it will trade better uh, always. And of course, you, you don't want one bottle. You want to be able to drink one bottle now, one bottle in two years, one bottle in 10 years, one bottle in 15 years. 
Um, but that's certainly a that's certainly a rule of thumb. Yeah, don't buy on points. We talked a little bit about this before. Any other points on not buying on points? Well, it all it all comes back to wine. For, wine should be fun. If you're not investing in wine for for fun as well as for potential financial gain, then you're you're kind of doing it wrong. Um, but but at the end of the day, plan that anything you buy, you're going to end up drinking. And if that's the case, you should only be buying things that you want to drink, because if you cannot find the market for it if suddenly burgundy has a backslider or this wine that this new wine that's supposed to be the next thing but then doesn't turn out to be the next thing or the 100 point canadian ice wine which is delicious by the way <laughs> doesn't perform uh, on the secondary market you're a wine lover that's the problem but but what you're buying plan plan to be able to drink it and if that is your background ethos, then you'll probably be guided to better investments based on the sheer fact that you're probably buying things that you want to drink. And if you want to drink them, other people probably want to drink them too. Well, let me, can I, let me make a counterpoint to that, which is you, you should do that. Like, say you had a, a certain amount of money that you want to invest in wine. You, could, you can do that with a portion. Like there's wines, and I, you know, I can throw out some names that have just skyrocketed beyond anyone's wildest dreams. Um, that are, you know, things from Burgundy estates like Domaine Bizo is one or Clos Rougiard from the Loire Valley oh, yeah. is another, which like that's a wine that m- many people might not actually enjoy drinking that wine, but a lot of people do. So maybe take uh, the amount of mine, wine money that you want to invest, take a portion and say to yourself, like, look, these are I love these wines. I think they're really great. If they go up in value, that's great. But if they don't, that's fine, too. I love them. Um, but then a portion, too, and say, like, this is the stuff that is just it's it's the, those sort of those blue chips that have really a proven, a proven track record. We've yeah. touched on label. We've touched yeah. on box. We've touched on storage. Anything else beyond what's in the bottle that you got to look at if you're considering buying a case, buying a collection? I mean, condition, uh, especially when we're talking about acquiring from somebody's seller rather than acquiring through a direct source. Uh, and especially if we're talking about, uh, you know, you, Carl's talked about Domain, which is a great resource because they can handle all your logistics and, and your inventory and all that. But if you're just constantly sending wine in there, you don't know if there might have been a seepage event. You know, corks are plants. They fail. And if you have, even if it's a sealed banded case, if one bottle seeps, not only is that bottle probably not worth anything, but it could affect the labels on other bottles. So um, don't, just, don't just put your babies in the dark and forget about them. You know, you, you have to sort of check in on your assets too. All right, let's play a quick round of Hot or Not. Then we're going to open up to questions from y'all. So I'm going to start with, uh, we're going to list about seven or eight wines here. Each of you has a quick answer, hot or not. Romani Conti, let's start with you. Hot. Hot. Hot, as hot as it gets. Yeah. <laughs> Even with the counterfeit issues that, that are out there? How much time do we have? <laughs> 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Yes, even with the counterfeit issues. Yeah. There's not, that's not as bad as you might think. <laughs> and also, for, you know, I know we don't have a lot of time, but I think it's worth talking about there is wine counterfeiting and it's usually in the top blue chips, but you also have individuals like us that know what to look for and can vet these things. And I have found counterfeit bottles in private client sellers. Occasionally it's not nearly as uh, much of a problem as it, you would want to think it is, or as, as sensational journalism would make you think it is, but it is a problem. And especially when you're looking at like DRC, like probably every one of us could tell you about the microprinting, the codes, the, the glass stamp, all that stuff. And now with new technologies of closed capsules and all that stuff, counterfeiting is becoming harder, uh, but you're going to need to make sure you have your stuff vetted. Screaming Eagle, hot or not? Not. Warm. Warm. What? That was the, wasn't one of the options. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it warming or cooling? Okay, I'll say hot but cooling. Screaming Eagle just is. I mean, it's just you. It's very easy to to sell at the same. There's a market price for it. I mean, it's 
So in that, in that way, it's not, it's not, it's definitely not warming. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I already know the answer to this next one. First growth Bordeaux. Which one? Any yeah. first growth Bordeaux. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, you know, the young, the younger one, I mean, first growth Bordeaux is not a good investment in the first f- seven, eight years. Uh, you can't buy first growth Bordeaux and flip it. I mean, it's not for that. Uh, very mature Bordeaux s- stored correctly is, is hot. Carlos. I, I do agree with you. Um, definitely first growth Bordeaux. Some age, um, I was looking up to acquire two cases of 1982 direct from the Chateau. It was uh, expensive, but I knew that bottle was those bottles been there for years though. Yeah, yeah, older vintage of Bordeaux. Yes. I mean, go 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 to Omprimeur or 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 buy a on release bottle of first growth Bordeaux and drink it, and you'll see why no one wants first growth Bordeaux. <laughs> first growth Bordeaux for ten years minimum. Right. California cult wines like Sinequanon, but California cult wines in general. Start with you, Carlos. Uh, I was I will pass on Sinequanon personally, but uh, I'm I'm. I know sommeliers love it, so it's, it's a good wine there. It's a good wine there. I think it's uh, some of those might, might be a... Uh, oh, my God, it's hot or not. Not talk about it for 15 minutes. Come on. <laughs> I will say no. <laughs> Sorry. Eric? Increasingly not. Yeah, for long-term investment, not. Okay. Super high-end burgundy. This sounds like a blue chip to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but you're, you're at the top, right? There's right. Not, you, you know, you're supposed, to, you're supposed to buy when things aren't looking so great. I mean, people who bought in 2008 all their burgundy, I mean, are doing, doing quite well right now. now it's, 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 it's speculative now to buy high-end burgundy at what some of us think might be the, the high watermark for the market. So. Okay. Wine NFTs, like the ones I mentioned, but, and, and that NFT concept around wine and buying wine. No. I honestly don't know enough about NFTs, but I think it's highly speculative, so I'm going not. Yeah, not. Okay. Uh, Barolo Barbaresco top end there. Top end of the shelf. Uh, for me, like that's you should buy that because it's amazing wine. It's not a it's not a financial investment. Yeah, I would say hot for enjoyment and ROI might be good as percent, but if you're looking at actual dollars, your three hundred dollar bottle ten years from now is worth four hundred dollars. So right. That's a good point that we never brought up. Like, what is yeah. a good investment to you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is making $30 a bottle a good investment to you? Or do you want 50, 60, 70, 80, 200% on your investments? Because that's a very good point. But, but from what I'm gathering, it's not like you should have that expectation in general. The expectation should be, this could go up in value. I'm going to drink it. I'm going to share it. I'm going to enjoy it. Or I'm going to pass it down Correct. through my estate. Correct. Let's, uh, let's end with uh, bourbon. Switch gears a little bit here. Pappy Van Winkle, the high-end bourbon. Is the bourbon bubble still hot or not? Let's start with you because I know you deal with uh, bourbon. Bourbon, yes. Uh, Pappy, maybe, uh, you know, Pappy is the, the workhorse of the collectible bourbon world. I mean, you're not, you're not going to get rich buying Pappy um, and reselling it. But, uh, you know, uh, bourbon is one of those things where you need to be very, very in tune to what is selling and what people are interested in. Um, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky. Any thoughts on bourbon? I, I think, yes, a puppy. Definitely go for it. If you know your local local places, they got puppy cheap, buy it. That's, yeah, yes. if you're acquiring it at what it should cost, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. not yeah. what it yeah. 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 I think yeah. whiskeys in general as a category are hot. Um, a prescient example is Buffalo Trace used to be my well whiskey. If you ordered a whiskey and Coke, that's what we were pouring you out of the well because we were paying $12 a bottle for it five years ago. Now, if you fly United, get that little mini bottle of Buffalo Trace and you can sell that one serving for $25. <laughs> 
Well, we just sold a Yamazaki 55 year old. They just released it. And if you, if you were lucky enough to get a bottle through the three tier system, you know, you were buying it for, I think 75,000 and you could flip it instantly for 700,000. Um, yeah. so there's definitely, there's definitely examples out there. I mean, I think the real lesson is like, like any investment, there's no shortcuts really. Yeah. You need yeah. to know the market through and through. All right. Final thing, uh, just because we're talking about something that grows out of the ground in an era of climate change and climate warming, especially through that California region, but go across the world, this has become a scarcer and scarcer investment. How much do you think about that as a collector, as a restaurant owner, as a consultant, as a SOM? Uh, well, it's in our mind all the time now, especially with, I mean, so we have some vintage in Chablis that we got none. None of the white burgundy is going to be available because it didn't, we got anything. So uh, that's why a new... Uh, a lot of people from Europe are investing in the United States because we have a little more, Oregon is a great place. A lot of people plant Pinot Noir, they're removing Pinot Noir and now planting Chardonnay. Uh, climate change, it's, 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 it's in our mind. And definitely, definitely something to think about every time you do make an investment or buy any type of wines with futures. So. Also, I mean, look, remember at, at the core of it, wine is plant juice. It's like moldy grapes, right? And as the climate warms, structurally things change. Not only does that mean the style of wine change, but that also means the ageability of that wine changes. Because one of the most important facets of a wine's ability to age, structurally speaking, is acidity. And as things get warmer, natural acidities are reduced. And so stylistically, some of these wines that could have held 30, 40, 50, 60 years, we're now seeing that they're no, potentially no longer able to do that. And I think a prescient example is if, if you're paying attention to what's just happened in Bordeaux. I don't know if you know, but the French don't really like change on tradition. And they just authorized a dozen varieties, like Portuguese varieties, like Torriga Nacional and, and, other, and, and other like hot climate hardy varieties to be planted maximum 5% in your vineyards. But non-French grapes are now authorized in the vineyards of Bordeaux as a, a first stage of insulation against the effects of climate change so that they can keep those wines ageable. Final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, if there's two seconds for, uh, you know, this is an anecdote I love telling, which was I was in Bordeaux a number of years ago uh, w- uh, working with a negotiant there called Nathan Johnston. And they're French, but their name is, the company's called Nathan Johnston. So their heritage is Irish. But they have handwritten documents going back hundreds of years now. Um, and th- some of those documents that we looked over show what, what were recipes for Bordeaux and how they used to make Bordeaux. And they couldn't, because of the climate, they couldn't get the alcohol that they wanted, the richness that they wanted. So they would mix in Alicante with these wines because the climate didn't allow them to make what you would now consider Bordeaux. Like if you've ever had 05 Bordeaux or 09 Bordeaux, like that was, that couldn't be made back in the 18th century. So they would mix in wines from Spain. Um, so, you know, these, these trends change now, of course, with this, with climate change happening, with things warming up, um, everyone's picking much, much earlier. We can't, now we can't get wines that are elegant enough, wines that are lean enough. Things, and that, of course, the change has gone over the course of, of, of hundreds of years, but it's certainly not going to be reversed, right? We're going to keep moving in that direction. And it, certainly what it feels like, and if you talk to winemakers, I think a lot of them in these what are sort of traditionally cooler, you know, whether it's Champagne or Chablis, would tell you is that we're moving that way. The, 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 um, the graph is, the, the, the slope is steepening, and we're moving that way much, much more quickly. Um, and I, I do think from an investment standpoint, that will, uh, at least what I see is that when you talk about vintages that are um, sort of w- w- the shorthand is uh, more traditional or more elegant vintages, um, people are really seeking those out because, you know, I, I, I was mentioning earlier, I drank 2016 Corton from DRC blind a few days ago and it would have been hard for me and it was hard for all of us and we all didn't get it as, as Burgundy, um, you know, so we are we're definitely moving in that direction. So it's certainly something to think about. Good panel for 2023. All right, we'll take questions from the crowd. Uh, if, folks, if you have a question, 
Feel free. Go ahead, right there. Oh, sorry. Oh, question I, was about the champagne market. Do you have opinions about the champagne I have lots of thoughts market? on champagne. Um, <laughs> drink it. Um, so when we're talking about blue chips, we, we really did neglect speaking about champagne. Um, and there, there are a couple producers that I, I think Krug is going to be always going to be a blue chip. But, but yeah, the champagne market has been increasing dramatically. There's also global champagne shortage. So now we're looking at a supply-demand thing, but that is causing an artificial bubble at the top end of the champagne market as well. Um, you now, thanks to climate change, have new players like British Sparkling Wine, um, which can be as expensive as many champagnes and can be as good. And that was not a thing that could happen 20 years ago. Um, but one of the problems with long-term hold of champagne is that that effervescence diminishes over time as those bubbles, like just from physics, precipitate into solution. So champagnes from the 70s and 80s are delicious if you have the chance to have them, but they're barely, barely tingly, barely sparkling. So champagne as a quick flip I, could be beneficial. Um, but as a long term, it, it, because of the effervescence, it, it definitely ages a little bit differently. Um, so you just have to be a little bit careful about how you do that. It's also for for old champagne. It's a very small market. Like there's people yeah. who seek out, and it, it's, it was traditionally a British thing, and it's now yeah. becoming an American thing. But like for people who enjoy champagne from the 70s and 80s, it's it's a very small market. I mean, all, everything we're talking about is a small market, but champagne's really like mature champagne is really small. And also, champagne's not as scarce as you think it is. Like, I'm going to out Moet and Chandon for a minute. Uh, Dom Perignon is very much a standard of luxury. It's still hard to get. It's very expensive. They make over 5 million bottles a year of Dom. 5 million bottles. That's almost 400. It's like 344,000 cases of Dom Perignon. That is not small production by any stretch of the imagination. And it still holds value because of marketing more than anything. But yeah. as people get wiser to it, and like, I'm not disparaging gum, I think it's great. But for its price, I can name a dozen champagnes I'd rather drink. Another question, right there. Yeah, I was gonna ask about like- um, Here's a mic, here's a mic. Oh, I'm fine, I can, I can be loud. Project. Okay. All right, oh, I see. Um, I'm <laughs> About like price transparency in the past decade or so and websites like Wine Searcher, how does that affect how much people are willing to pay? Do you think it's good overall or do you think it's good and bad? Oh man, I mean, it's, you know, like I was saying earlier, there's no governing body that oversees this stuff. So Wine Searcher is ridiculous. I mean, anyone, anyone can put, you can put whatever up on Wine Searcher and just see if someone bites, right? You can put a bottle up there for a million dollars and just leave it up there for five years. You know, that's not what the market is for the wine. Uh, Wine Market Journal is actual trades from the auction market, but there's no data behind it. It's just a number. So for example, you could see two bottles, one went for 50% of the other one. Well, it doesn't show that that bottle had a lower fill or it had a terrible label or it had bad provenance or something. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, my issue with websites like Wine Market Journal and Wine Searcher is people take them as absolutes. They don't necessarily understand that like, well, look, here's a, a bottle of DRC that went for a gazillion dollars. And it was like, well, that was from Robert Duran's private cellar and it never left Burgundy for 50 years. Yours is not going to go for that. Does that answer your question? I don't know. <laughs> no. Uh, well, so the answer is there is no great there is no great transparency in the market. And, and I will say it's hurting a little bit of the market because a lot of people who has a good collection they go to wine search and expecting to get that money. And I'm yeah. like, listen, you cannot. We people like people work in this industry. We and we acquire sellers, sell sellers, and work with auctions. We kind of know what the market value is per bottle. Then we're like, this is a couple hundred dollars. You're like. Oh no! Or a couple thousand dollars less. You're like, oh, I can't sell it. It's like, well, this is the market value. Yeah, and it's also unvetted information too. Like, you know, you some some 
store in like East Bumblefuck, Montana might put a, a, a bottle of something on Wine Searcher for $500 more than it's worth, they might not even have the bottle, but that can, and I know people who have done this because they have it in their personal collection. So they have their friends in retail flood the market with, with the bottles at that price because they're hoping to sell their wine search at that price, but that automatically just inflated their seller value when they go to private party transactions. It, it comes back to holding costs too. What's your exit strategy? I mean, you know, sometimes people will look at a wine on Wine Search or Wine Market Journal and so forth. And what I tell them is like, look, if you are willing to go out and find my client in Taiwan yourself, and yeah. sell it to him, then yes, you can get that price. Otherwise, someone has to get paid to move yeah. this wine for you. Like any, like any asset. I mean, like you can't sell your house without paying a commission. I mean, yeah. Last question, right there. I have a question. So, a lot of what you guys have talked about is for personal and private collections. When you're looking at investing for your businesses and your restaurants, what are you specifically looking for in those avenues when you're purchasing higher value wines to potentially sell to consumers? Great question. That's a great question. I mean, for us uh, as a restaurant owners, we're always looking for value for the customer. Something that, that is no burgundy, but it's a good quality Pinot Noir, like Domaine de la Côte. That's why I brought it here. Uh, as well, we have to have exit strategy. Restaurant fails in the first three years. So you have to buy wines that they might have to be the only way you get exit, exit from the restaurant. I mean, restaurant business is not, is not, is not easy. It's a very hard business. But yes, this is a business at the end of the day. You have money, you put it in, and you expect a profit. So investing in wine, that's why in the restaurant business, the way I think, we always buy full cases because you never know. And, you know, and also, furthermore, in restaurants, we have the opportunity to buy wholesale. Um, we have, and everything's direct guaranteed providence through the three-tier distribution system. By law, it has to be. So we're getting it. It goes from the winery to the distributor to us. Um, the problem with most restaurants, well, it's really twofold. One is storage. I've never in my life seen a restaurant anywhere on the planet that has enough wine storage, maybe Burns, but not even them, right? So there's never enough space for it. And so if you're a restaurant investor and you want a long-term selling program, you really need to have the storage space for it. One of the biggest problems with restaurants is not the access to the wine. It's their, the, A, the ability to store it and like in the physical footprint and B, and in many states, it's illegal to store offsite and B, it's the cash flow. Most restaurant operators don't understand that, that wine specifically is an, for a restaurant is an appreciating asset always because, and if you didn't know this, I don't think I'm shocking anyone by saying the typical markup uh, in a restaurant for wine is 250 to 350% over their cost. Now, that's not them being gougy because they've got to pay for the restaurant and the lights and the labor and the glassware and the, all that stuff, right? That's just to cover the cost of operation. Um, but when restaurants are, are looking at and investing in wine, a lot of times owners don't want to tie up a lot of money, which means you go into a restaurant, you get this amazing Domaine de la Côte at his restaurant, and then next week it's gone because it's like, I, I can only get this much and I only had so much to store and get it while you can. Or, or you see what you see a lot in New York uh, at really high-end restaurants, which is private, there's another exit strategy, is private individuals consigning their wine to restaurants. Uh, and sort of it's everyone wins, right? The, the restaurant doesn't have to take a financial investment into literally millions of dollars worth of wine, but they get a fat they get they become a wine destination, and what the what the owner of the wine gets is usually fifty percent of the list price, uh, uh, which is more than they would get liquidating in another way. Um, so excellent point, excellent. All right, let's do a quick uh, crowd poll. Wine number one. Who, who thought that was the best wine here? Put up your hands. <laughs> oh, I didn't know it was going to be fight. Club. Yeah, jeez. Oh, <laughs> I'm curious. Loves it. She loves it. About four or five people. How about number two? Yeah. I'm all right. Go. All right. And number three. All right. Pretty even. Pretty even. 
Different tastes? I see you're paying somebody. Different tastes. It's not even, <laughs> it's not even at all. Eric clearly won. I'll tell you what, I learned so much just by speaking to you all and preparing for this. This has really been fascinating for me. Let's give it up for our panelists. Charles Anton, Eric Sagelbaum, Carlos Solorzano-Smith. You guys will be around for a couple of follow-up questions afterwards. Thanks so much for being here, guys. Sure. This Thank was a lot so of fun. Thank, Thank you. you, guys. Thank you, Thank you for spending Saturday.